0: A Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell. Welcome to Ag Reminders. Since man first started growing food, increasing demand has seen European explorers seek out and colonise new faraway lands for their farmers, and indeed Australia and New Zealand are some of the most recent examples of this. Now over the last 70 years, man has developed a fascination with exploring and colonising planets beyond Earth. First the Moon, and now Mars, where recent voyagers have been looking to understand the soil, the atmosphere, and indeed the availability of water a year's hypersonic travel away. The recent film The Margin fascinated us with the fiction and the possibilities of potentially sending men and women to live there, and indeed the reality is closer than we think, with NASA looking to send a group of astronaut explorers who are now in training on a one-way trip to Mars by 2030. But will this be a solution to some of our food productivity issues? Indeed, will it be possible to live there sustainably and farm in such an inhospitable place with no air, no nutrients and no liquid water? To develop a strategy and indeed a methodology for doing just that, some 15 years ago, NASA engaged the services of Dr Robert Zubrin in Colorado, USA to pioneer the Mars Direct project. His mission was to ascertain if Mars is a place where an actual civilization can be developed and potentially be able to grow crops and then work out how to do just that. Dr. Zubrin is a highly respected astroscientist with a master's in aeronautics and astronautics and a PhD in nuclear engineering. He's the author of over 200 technical and non-technical papers and 5 books as well as being one of the leaders in development of interplanetary missions. He's also the president of both the Mars Society and Pioneer Astronautics, which is a private company that does research and development on innovative aerospace technologies. Welcome to AgriMinders, Robert.
1: Thanks for inviting
0: me. Robert, let me go straight to the crunch. Can we really grow food on
1: Mars? Well, certainly. Uh, Mars has a carbon dioxide atmosphere, It has large supplies of water. Uh, We've now discovered glaciers on Mars covered with just a foot or so of dust that contain more pure water ice than there is in the American Great Lakes. We also have on Mars the various other elements of life, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, iron, so forth. So um, we definitely should be able to grow food on Mars.
0: What are the things that are going to make it difficult to do that?
1: Well, the gravity on Mars is one-third that of Earth and there doesn't seem to be any reason to believe that uh, plants would have any problems coping with that. Uh, they, uh, in fact, would probably just grow taller um, than they can do on Earth. Uh, the uh, sunlight on Mars is only about 40% that on Earth. So it's about the same as that prevailing in Norway. And... Um, But we do have an abundant biosphere. They do grow plants in Norway. Um, And uh, unlike the moon, where there is no atmosphere, and so solar flares would be a danger to plants unless they were grown uh, underground, which would require artificial lighting, which would be very expensive. On Mars, there is an atmosphere thick enough to mask out solar flares, so we could use thin-walled inflatable greenhouses on the surface of Mars. We'd have to use greenhouses. The air is not thick enough... Uh, to uh, grow plants in the open, uh, not now anyway. Uh, and, uh, but uh, we could create inflatable greenhouses on Mars, grow plants in them. We have the water, we have the CO2, we have the other elements and um, we should be able to do it.
0: So, in, of course, when you grow plants, they produce oxygen. Um, is it going to be possible to improve the atmosphere on Mars or is that just too big a step from, from uh, too small an area of crop?
1: Well, uh, eventually, yes, but that is a ways in the future. Um, Our initial goal in growing plants on Mars will be to, first of all, supply food uh, for a Mars base, supply some oxygen for the base, uh, also fiber and other useful products that one gets from plants and, of course, feeding animals, which can then also be food as well.
0: So, what about the atmosphere? What is there any Is it similar to ours? Just thinner, or is it a completely different mix?
1: It's different. Um the first of all, it's thinner. It's only about one percent as thick as Earth's atmosphere. So it's the same density as Earth's atmosphere at about one hundred thousand feet altitude. so you you would need a spacesuit walking around outside on Mars, okay. But um nevertheless, it's there. And furthermore, it's ninety five percent carbon dioxide about 3% nitrogen, about 2% argon. So there's no new gases in it that we don't know, but they're in very different proportions. So um, initially, we and our plants would be living in pressurized habitats as well as uh, greenhouses and so forth. Uh, Then we will create larger domes. So instead of living in habitats the size of uh, houses, we will have domes 50 meters 100 meters 200 meters in diameter uh, within which uh, plants can grow and also people can just walk around and you could put uh, very simple uh, ordinary kind of houses inside of those domes as well Uh, we could also create underground vaults comparable to subway systems create massive housing underground now that's the mars of the 21st century now, eventually, I do believe that people will want to terraform Mars, which is to say make Mars like Earth. Now, Mars was actually once a warm and wet planet. We know that for a fact because there are water erosion features on the surface of Mars. There are dry rivers, dry lakes. There's even a dried up northern ocean. They're not exactly dried up. The ro- w- water is frozen out. The water's still there, but it's not flowing anymore. But in order to liberate this, we need to warm the planet. Now, we know how to warm planets, okay? As you know, it's in the news quite a bit. Um, And if we actually wanted to warm a planet, if we wanted to do global warming by design rather than by accident, we could do it far more effectively than we're currently doing it by accident on Earth. Uh, There are artificial greenhouse gases that we know about that are much more powerful greenhousing agents than carbon dioxide is. And if we set up factories on Mars to produce them and release them into the atmosphere, we could warm the planet. And inside of 50 degrees, we'd, uh, excuse me, inside of 50 years, we could warm the planet by about 10 degrees centigrade. That's a lot. That's 10 times as much as all the global warming that's been on Earth since the late 1800s. And the... With that amount of warming, first of all, you would force massive amounts of carbon dioxide that's currently soaked into the soil to outgas. And you would thicken the atmosphere of Mars up to a third or a half of current Earth atmospheric pressure. And that CO2 would add a lot of warming. Um, another 50 degrees and that would cause all this frozen water to melt and those rivers would flow again there'd be rain the, and, and, and at that point you have a water cycle and then you could start spreading plants around in the open on a massive basis and um, those plants would then start putting massive amounts of oxygen into Mars's atmosphere. Now if we talk about using the kind of plants that we have now on Earth um, and we spread them around Uh, actively and help them grow, fertilize them, did some other useful things, Uh, it would still take a thousand years before you put enough oxygen in Mars's atmosphere for you to walk around and just breathe the air. But I think if we're looking a hundred years in the future when people are actually going to be doing this, we're going to have genetically modified plants that could be much more efficient at photosynthesis than the kind of plants that we are currently acquainted with. You know, the current plants we have right now are like solar panels that are 1% efficient. Why not make plants that are 5% efficient or even 10? And the, uh, because our solar panels are 20% efficient. And if we can make more efficient plants, we could accelerate this uh, uh, greening process. We could accelerate the transformation of Mars' atmosphere into an oxygen atmosphere and uh, uh, do it much quicker. In fact, I think that Mars probably will be terraformed 200 years from now. And if people living on Mars then were to look back at this time and read my book, A Case for Mars, and another one, A Case for Space, and where I talk about this kind of thing, they'll say, wow, here's this guy who was born in the 20th century. He knew he would terraform Mars. But doing it with green plants and greenhouse gases, how 20th century can you get uh, he couldn't know that we would actually do it with self-replicating nanorobots or whatever. In other words, I'm a 20th century mind grappling with a 22nd century problem.
0: What about nitrogen, Robert? How are we going to actually get nitrogen into the ground for the plants to absorb that way?
1: First of all, we'd set up machines to acquire the Martian atmosphere and separate. Here we have CO2, here we have nitrogen, here we have argon, Okay. And we could put greatly increased concentrations of nitrogen in our greenhouse compared to the natural Martian atmosphere. In other words, there's the, you know, billions of tons of nitrogen in Mars's atmosphere, and we only need a few kilograms in a greenhouse. So we would separate nitrogen out of the atmosphere, feed it into the greenhouse, and there we would have nitrogen at levels not of 3%, but of 50% or even 80% as we currently have uh, in the Earth's atmosphere.
0: In terms of oxygen, why, if there has been water on, on Mars and you say it used to be liquid water, why, why is there no oxygen still in the atmosphere? What happened to the oxygen that was put into the atmosphere at one time?
1: Well, actually, you know, the early Earth did not have oxygen. Neither did the early Mars. Oxygen on Earth is an artifact of life. If there was no life on Earth, there'd be no oxygen. Originally, there was no oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. Life has transformed the Earth in the interests of life. And so since Mars probably never had a powerful biosphere like the Earth did, it may have once had life, but clearly there's no evidence of an abundant biosphere ever existing on Mars. Um, It never had an oxygen atmosphere.
0: Okay, so it's never had oxygen, even though it's had water. So that means you're saying there's never been any plant life. There's no carbon being produced on Mars.
1: There may well have been. I actually do think there was microorganisms on the surface of Mars, and I think they may still exist underground in the groundwater. There is liquid water underground on Mars today. We've detected it with ground-penetrating radar. And if there's any life on Mars now, that's where it is, and it'd be microbes, not big plants and animals. Uh, and probably that's all there's ever been on Mars. Uh, and now, it's still of great scientific interest because we want to know if it uses the same biochemistry as Earth life or if it's something totally different. But it, in order for life to tra- – in other words, life has to take over a planet to transform it. And life became bu- abundant enough on Earth to take over, remake the planet. And it ch- turn a, a geosphere into a biosphere, and some people make the analogy today that humans are now taking over the planet again, and we're remaking it again in our own interests. That's sort of what life does. But life, I don't. Th- while it may have existed on Mars, it never took over in the way it did on Earth. It never reshaped the planet. So in terms
0: of what we learn on Mars about growing crops, is that information going to be also transferable back to a, to a, to our Earth here so that we can actually improve our production and the use of perhaps lands that currently we consider to be marginal in, on this globe?
1: Yes, I, I think it will. In fact, I think that uh, in general, uh, the prime export of a Mars uh, colony will be technologies will be inventions. Now, they're not going to export food from Mars to Earth, but the Martians, uh, you know, they're going to have very limited acres because they're going to be farming in greenhouses instead of on the wide open plains. And so they're going to have a tremendous incentive to maximize the production of every square meter. And that's going to drive them to find out uh, the most productive crop practices possible. They're going to come up with new strains of crops, and these things can be uh, exported back to Earth. Also, their, their greenhouses will probably be highly automated uh, because there's going to be nothing in shorter supply on Mars than human labor power, both in quantity of people and, and variety of available skills. So they're going to be driven to advances in labor-saving machinery, in robotics, in artificial intelligence, all this kind of thing. All These are going to be the exports of Mars. And then finally, if we actually do discover Martian life, and it does have a different genetic code. You know, all earth life is the same at the biochemical level. They all use RNA and DNA, the exact same uh, alphabet for transferring information. just like, you know, English speaking people, the French, the Germans, Spanish, they all use this, we all use the same alphabet and same kind of written language with words and verbs and nouns and all this. The Chinese have a completely different alphabet. They It works on a totally different principle. It doesn't have a common origin. It doesn't have the same principle. It accomplishes the same thing of taking words that you hear and putting them down on paper so that someone can read them a year later or a thousand years later, but it does it in a totally different way. Now, what we're talking about here is the basic technology of life, and if we can find alternative ways to do it, to, to uh, implement uh, the transfer of information from one generation to another, to basically to program the growth of organisms, that's what the genes do, um, this represents tremendous powers over nature, which could have enormous benefits for agriculture as well as medicine and all branches of biology.
0: Well, I I had a conversation with Paul Scully Power, who was an Australian astronaut who spent six months on the space station, uh, and I was going to talk to him, but he said in the whole time he was on the space station, he never grew one plant on the space station, so he had absolutely no idea how that would work or not work. So, I mean, have we actually spent a lot of time trialling this? I mean, how do we actually work out from Earth-based experiments and Earth-based work whether something's actually going to happen
1: on Mars. Well, okay, there's only so much you can... Well, first of all, the space station is not a good uh, example because there's zero gravity in the space station and that's something very different than what plants are used to. I mean, you could grow things like spirulina and hydroponics and it's the same thing because they're floating, but... But in terms of plants that that have stems that grow and trees and things like this, these things are, are, are definitely adapted to a gravity environment. Now, of course, the gravity on Mars is one third that of Earth. But we could duplicate that by creating a spinning spacecraft. If you spin a spacecraft, the spinning space station, if you will... Uh, you can use centrifugal force to create any level of gravity you want. You could create lunar gravity, which is one-sixth Earth, Mars, which is one-third. You could create something bigger than Mars. Uh, you could create something bigger than Earth. Um, but the idea here, I think the relevant one, is Mars. So we would create an artificial gravity space station, and, and by we learn how plants and animals grow in Martian gravity. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned before that the glaciers or the uh, the frozen water on Mars was bigger than the Great Lakes part of America. But if you got all of the water on Mars and turned it into a sea, how big would that be? Like the Mediterranean, the Pacific, how, how big a sea of water would we have um, if, if we actually got hold of all the water and put it one place?
1: Uh, probably like the Mediterranean. Mars is drier than the Earth, but for sure but i mean the earth is mostly a water world but if you took all the water that there is on mars and you s- spread it over the planet there'd be about as much water on mars as there is on earth minus its salt water oceans in other words if you just took the fresh water of the earth and compared that to the land on mars is not that different
0: so how do they recreate the uh, conditions on Mars to actually trial things in, in, on Earth? They talk about the Mars regolith, the kind of the dirt, if you like, that we grow the crops in. Where did they get that from? How did they make it like the Martian dirt and how realistic really was it in testing all these theories?
1: Well, um, the, we do not have any samples of Martian dirt on Earth. We have some Martian rocks on Earth that were knocked off Mars by meteors and flew over here and landed. Um, But we don't have any Martian soil. Uh, We do of course have lunar soil um, because astronauts brought back um, quite a bit of it. Um, But the uh, Martian soil will not be the same as lunar soil. Lunar soil, because there's been no erosion on the moon, the, the little grains of sand are extremely sharp edged nothing has smoothed them out at all. The um, Mars would be different. Um, I think, given I mean, we have some measurements of Martian soil made by our landers and rovers there that can tell us about the chemical composition of the soil. We can also, uh, to some extent, measure in the mechanical properties of the soil. Um, I think um, the soil that we first put in Martian greenhouses, first of all, won't be um, just the dirt we find outside. OK, we're going to have to condition it because uh, it may contain chemicals like perchlorates that are, are toxic to some plants. We'd have to wash it out. We would condition the soil. We would actually, uh, the material is there on Mars to create whatever kind of soil you want, but we'd have to work at it a bit to uh, probably put the soil, uh, create the soil that we actually want in our greenhouse.
0: Yes, yeah, so to carry on from that point then, Robert, if they, they've created a sort of a soil which matches something similar, what about the other conditions in the lab? How are they able to recreate those? Are they recreating the atmosphere to what they've found? Or, you know, are you confident that what they've created is realistically like Mars?
1: Well, uh, first of all, well, there's only been a few experiments where people have actually tried to grow crops in Martian air as it is, being very thin CO2. Um, In most cases, we put uh, a designer gas mixture in there uh, corresponding to what we'd want in a Martian greenhouse. Now, one thing that I'm pretty sure you're going to want to do in a Martian greenhouse, which is actually done in a few Earth greenhouses, as as I think you know, but be very easy to do on Mars, is enrich the CO2 content. Uh, Plants like CO2. It's their food, along with water. And um, the Earth's CO2 is uh, 400 parts per million. Uh, You know, there's been times in the history of Earth when it was 2,000 parts per million and it was much easier time for plants. And uh, we could easily uh, enrich the carbon dioxide content of the uh, Martian greenhouse to that kind of level, about five times what we currently have on Earth. And it would accelerate the plant growth quite a bit.
0: So I guess every a hell of a lot of people um down on earth have seen the film The Martian other than the fact that you couldn't use a tarpaulin for a nose cone on an escape vehicle what well, is any is any of that realistic I mean do you think that that gave people a bit of an idea of how it would be done
1: The Martian I mostly liked uh it's uh not realistic to the letter it's done in a spirit of realism as opposed to fantasy but it's it's correct in that growing food and otherwise making use of the materials that exist in the place you're going is the key to making it habitable. I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as natural resources. There's only natural raw materials. It's resourceful people that turn materials into resources. Land wasn't a resource till we invented agriculture. Oil wasn't a resource till we developed oil drilling and machines that could run on the stuff we got, and 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 so on. So... Um, we'll create resources on Mars by being resourceful ourselves.
0: And why not the Moon? I mean, what the, you know, we, I know the Moon has no atmosphere, but under the hothouse system you're talking about, why don't we trial this out on the Moon before we go to Mars, or is that very different?
1: Well, the Moon is different and it's not as good. Um, I'll tell you a number of reasons why. First of all, Mars water is much more available. Uh, on the moon, except in permanently shadowed craters near the South Pole where it's ultra cold, there is no water. Uh, I mean, the, the water is in the soil in parts per million quantities. It's, if there was concrete on the moon, lunar colonists would mine it to get the water out. On Mars, on the other hand, there's glaciers that are pure water ice within a shovel distance of the surface. There's Martian soil that's in some places as much as 60% water by So There's plenty of water on Mars. There's carbon on Mars. The atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide. That's fundamental to plant growth. There is no carbon on the moon. There's nitrogen on Mars. There's no nitrogen on the moon. Um, and and so forth. Mars has a 24-hour day, uh, virtually the same length as Earth. On the moon, it's two weeks of light, two weeks of dark. It's very different than what plants are used to growing in. Um, the Martian atmosphere is thick enough to mask out solar flares, which means you could use thin-walled greenhouses and use natural light to grow your crops. On um, the moon, um, uh, the... the, the there is no atmosphere. Plants would be killed by solar flares unless they were grown underground with artificial lighting, which, as you know, is an extremely expensive way to try to grow crops. That's why our greenhouses aren't transparent, uh, or otherwise we put the crops outside instead of in the closet. Uh, so the, the Moon is an inferior place to do agriculture to Mars by far, and uh, you know, for the coming age of exploration, I compare. The moon to Mars as Greenland to North America in the previous age of European exploration. You know, Greenland was closer to Europe. Europeans reached it first, but it was a much poorer place to try to build a civilization. So they set up some outposts there. We still have outposts there. But Mars was the place that could be settled and grow into a new nation. Uh, Not Mars. North America was the place that could be settled and, and grow into a new nation. And the same is true with Mars.
0: And what else? What, what about outside Mars? Are there other? I know that um, people have talked about Venus, but that's a little bit hot. But going right out of our our solar system, I know they discovered a a, a lump of rock which I think they called Kepler two b, which looked a bit like Earth. I mean, that's a long, long way away. But um, is are there any other? Is there any evidence that there are other places we might be able to go to that might be even better than Mars?
1: Sure. Um... Yeah, the results of the Kepler mission uh, indicate that one in five stars has an Earth-sized planet in its habitable zone. That is, the habitable zone of a star is the area near or far to it, depending upon the brightness of the star, where you have the right temperatures uh, for life and liquid water. And one in five stars. And You know, there's 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So that's 80 billion stars have Earth-sized planets in their habitable zone. So uh, we're living in a universe that uh, is welcoming to life. And
0: what do you think is going to win the race? Is it going to be quicker for us to find a way to get to those places quickly or quicker for us to make Mars habitable?
1: I think uh, we'll probably do Mars first. Uh, it's so much closer than other st- than the stars. Uh, but the, the lessons learned there on how to take a planet, which you know um, needs some fixing upping to to really make habitable, to to learn how to do that with a planet which isn't quite as nice as Earth, um, that's going to be a lesson that we'll take to the stars with us because you know. Um, th- there'll be a lot more planets that are a little bit defective than those that are just perfect. And the Mars One
0: project, which is underway now, uh, we've got two Australian astronauts who are training, I think, in the last 100 potential candidates for that. Do you think that's going to happen? Are we actually going to get... I think the mission is to get 10 people on Mars by about 2030. Is that going to happen, do you think?
1: Well, I don't think that's going to happen because the Mars One organisation doesn't have the resources to make it happen. But I think we'll have people on Mars by 2030 by cause of uh, SpaceX, which is the entrepreneurial launch company led by Elon Musk. They have done remarkable things. That is real. They've created reusable launch vehicles. They've shown that they can create new space systems in one-third the time at one-tenth the cost that people thought normal. And they're working right now on a heavy lift vehicle that they call Starship. It's not a Starship like the Enterprise. It won't go to the stars. But it's a fully reusable rocket ship that will go to orbit and can even go to Mars. And uh, I think that thing will be flying to orbit by, say, 2024. And I think they'll be sending people to Mars by 2030.
0: Will they to bring them back or is it going to be a one-way trip?
1: They're planning round trips. But eventually people will go one way. Okay, just as people went to America and Australia one way. And uh, I, for one, am glad my grandparents took the one-way trip. Um, And, uh, you know, I think probably many Australians are glad that their folks took the one-way trip too.
0: Is there a plan by SpaceX or any of those other organisations to recruit people with an agricultural background who could go on these missions? I'm a bit old, otherwise I'd probably sign up.
1: Well, um, not that I know of, but I think, uh, well, you know, Australia has now started a space agency. And why don't uh, the Australian Space Agency make it their business to solve this problem of growing plants in space? Uh, Because, you know, this isn't a a form of research that takes billions of dollars to do. It's something they could afford to do, and it's something that's not being done. But, you know, there's another reason why I would take farmers to Mars, Okay. And, and it goes beyond growing plants. You know, the Mars Society, which is a nonprofit that I lead, we have these two practice Mars stations, one in the Arctic and one in the American desert where you practice Mars missions and uh, in a desert environment. And uh, we typically have a couple of scientists on the crew and different other skills. One um, skill, though, that is is the most important in any crew of uh, five or six people on one of these missions is the ability to fix things, and uh, what I have repeatedly observed is that uh, people who grew up on farms, um, you know, they have tremendous aptitude at this kind of thing, you know, the generator goes out, and, you know, where's the manual? D- don't, I don't need the manual, here, I'll figure this thing out, and the, the, that's the kind of people you need on, on a Mars mission.
0: Well, Dr Robert Zubrin, thank you so much for being our AgriMinder today. I must say, off a pretty low base, I've learned a fantastic amount and I'm sure all our listeners have as well. It's been great to have you on board and uh, I just wish you well in the ongoing endeavours, um, particularly led by the Americans, to get us onto Mars and in a sustainable way. Hopefully we might do a better job up there than what we've done on Earth, Robert.
1: Hopefully so. Anyway, thanks for having me on your show. And if people want to know more, uh, I've written two books. One's called The Case for Mars. The other's called The Case for Space that explain more about all this stuff. I'm also the head of an organization called the Mars Society that people can find online at marssociety.org. And we have a large and extremely active chapter in Australia. And so Australians can join and get involved.
0: Absolutely amazing. Thank you very much, Robert. And uh, thank you for being our agri today. Cheers. I'm sure that the idea of moving to a great unknown land was as unlikely in the 17th century as a manned mission to Mars is perceived to be today. But Dr Zubrin has illuminated us on the fact that this is clearly doable and even likely. But will we be able to successfully farm on Mars in 100 years? Or will the benefits be limited to new science and species that we can apply to our food production here on Earth? I would love to come back and interview my grandchildren and great-grandchildren over the next century just to find out. I'm Chris Russell. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Agreminders on Apple Podcasts.